almost turned this on too early. Y'all would have heard me singing. And that would have been bad for our gathering. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Beautiful people of the well. It is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, happy Father's Day once again to you awesome dads. Um, I just want to call some people out too. Uh, some of y'all are spiritual fathers and you did not stand up. Um, and I just want to honor you. Like we have a lot of men in our church who are pouring in to a lot of other men. And so thank you for that. As I was standing in the back, just kind of looking around, I thought, man, this is awesome to see. There are so many godly men that are really uh, trying to serve our king and serve the kingdom and bless others. And so uh, you know who you are. If you didn't stand up, I won't call you out publicly. Uh, I almost just did. I'm, I'm going to rein it in. Here we go. But I'm thankful for being in a church that has a ton of different spiritual fathers. So happy Father's Day once again. Uh, y'all ready? All right. So Paul takes us on one of my favorite topics before uh, sort of diving into a new direction and into a new theme. And that topic, that idea is uh, spiritual vibrancy. That's what Paul's going to be hitting on today. And so Paul sort of pauses before he goes on to the next section. And then he kind of prays this specific prayer over the church of Ephesus. And he's really praying for their spiritual vitality, for them to be able to come alive in Christ. And so we too are going to take some time today before we rush on into our next section to kind of pause and pray for spiritual vitality for that is vital to our lives. Amen? Amen. Well, for six of us it is at least, right? And so it is vital to the lives of us. And so Paul's been unpacking all of these truths in Ephesians, and then he kind of comes to this section, which is going to be a division in our book. The first three chapters, what Paul is doing is he's discussing theology or how we should think about God, the ways in which we should uh, understand who God is. So he talks about the gospel or he talks about God's love for us or the ways in which the gospel impacts the way that we see each other. It's all this kind of theological thinking. And so really what he's doing is he's hitting on orthodoxy. That term just means right thinking, correct thinking. And so uh, Paul is hitting on orthodoxy. Then uh, after this kind of prayer, he pivots into what we'll call orthopraxy or right living. How do we take these gospel truths and then correctly live them out in our lives? And so uh, he ends this section kind of in between the two with this prayer that I think will both remind us of what we've already heard in the gospel section and compel us or motivate us or spur us on to actually uh, do loving good deeds as the gospel would have us do. And so understanding this prayer is going to help us understand how we can move from right thinking to right actions, and it's really all rooted in having the right heart for God. And so what Paul's doing is he's hitting the mind with theology, he's going to hit the, the hands with action, but here he's going to focus on the heart. How is it that our heart is dedicated, is rooted in God, firmly established in him and in who he is? And so that's what we're doing this morning. I'm excited about it because it's sincerely one of my favorite topics. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to start off in verse 14, and we're going to finish chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are up here already. If you just want to raise your hand, um, they would love to give you a Bible. Uh, no shame in raising your hand. And hey, if you don't own a Bible, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word and to be able to use it uh, throughout the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone. 
If you have the Uversion app underneath events, type in the Well Austin, and you can follow along that way. Or you can take this link right here and put it right in your browser. You can follow along that way as well. Uh, we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the Word. We want you to be seeing the Word to understand that, man, we believe these are the very words of God to us, that if we actually are able to comprehend even just minuscule pieces of what we are reading, it will create so much fire in our lives for Jesus. We believe this is inspired by the very Spirit of God. And so my hope is that even as we are reading it, that maybe I say one thing and then the Spirit just takes your mind off onto something totally different and you have the Word there in front of you and He guides you to have intimacy with Christ for that's what we desire for our family. Amen? Okay, so Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up there in verse 14. I want to read this whole thing so we get a, a, a scope of the prayer that Paul is praying. It says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the sweet, awesome, beautiful word of the Lord. Now, there are really like seven billion truths that we can unpack in this section right here. But one of the things to me that stands out almost immediately is in verse 14, we see it says that Paul bows his knees before the Father in heaven, right? He bows his knees. And so notice the text doesn't just say, therefore, I pray to the Father, right? But he's bowing his knees to the Father. The Spirit inspired the word as we just said, therefore, every single word is profitable or it is helpful for us. And so why would he include that word? Well, what we see here is Paul's posture. And it, this posture of prayer is what he's coming to God with. And there's a spirit of humility, this, this spirit of, uh, of reverence, this spirit of even neediness that's coming out immediately in this prayer. Now, it's not like you have to bow, right? In fact, there are tons of different postures that are mentioned all throughout Scripture. We see bowing. We see falling prostrate on one's face. We see standing. We see walking. We see kneeling. We see lifting up your head. We see lifting up the hands and over and over and over again. But I do think what this is showing us is that posture is actually important. And Paul is coming to God. This represents this humility mixed with this deep, deep desire to see God move, right? Like if after church, if you saw someone just like standing and talking to me, you would think, oh, they're having a, a normal conversation, you know? But if you saw somebody like bowing down before me, right? Like mine is being weirded out, you know? You would think, man, there's something serious happening here, right? And I'd be like, yo, get up off. You know, about to get me struck by lightning or something, right? But... <laughs> Like, there's a bowing before God. You only do this when there is reverence, when there is humility, when there is need, when there is seriousness. And so Paul enters into this prayer with this posture of humility, and he's bowing down before God. And so one of the truths that I think we can get uh, with our uh, need for spiritual vibrancy and the ways in which we kind of grow in our spirituality in general is even just our posture toward God, Right? Like, do you ever bow down before God? Do you ever bow before him? 
You know, not just physically, though that as well, but your heart posture. Is it a a bowing, a reverence? Is it a you knowing that you need God to move, and if he does not move, then nothing will happen? Do you bow down before the Father? I would argue even that physical posture really helps our spiritual posture. That's why you see people in worship raising up their hands, because this is a way that we physically exalt God, but what happens is our heart tends to follow our physical at times, and all throughout Scripture we see that. And so Paul's heart is going to follow this humility here immediately. He's humble. He's desperately seeking God. And what is he seeking God for? What is he asking the Father of? What is so necessary that he's bowing himself before the Father? Well, after him saying that he's the Father of everyone on earth, which includes the Gentiles, as we've been reading the past couple of weeks, every single person on earth can be a son, a daughter of God. He is our Father. Happy Father's Day to God, right? He is the Father of everyone on earth, he then goes into what he's asking for, why he's bowing down before God. And I want to read it again. Pick it up in verse 16 again. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. You can leave this text up here for a little while. He asked that the Ephesian church that they would be filled with power right? And that's one of the first things that we see that creates spiritual vibrancy or spiritual intimacy or a way in which we uh, are able to come alive in Christ. And that is literally the power of God. Paul is asking that they would be filled with God's power. He's essentially asking for them to be able to experience all of the truths that he just mentioned in chapters one through three. One of those truths is Christ's supreme power over everything. He is the all-powerful God. He is the king of of every king as we just sang about, Paul wants this to be realized within us. Now realize that Paul is actually asking for power in our inner being, it says there, right, in our inner being, okay? Our culture, that tends to give primary importance to our outer being, right, to the physical, to what we see. So how you look and how you dress or your weight or, you know, what you're wearing or, or what you eat, right, if you're vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or you be eating all the Franklin's barbecue, right? Like it's all about our physical, our external. Think about the ads that you see. Think about the commercials that you're seeing. So much of it is uh, thinking about the external man, but the inner man is far more important. The inner man is far more to be focused on. The soul is what we need care for. And so Paul doesn't even pray that we would see this power physically, but that we would feel this power internally. You tracking with that? And so Paul could have been praying that we would see more miracles physically with our eyes or that we would see the power of God, but he wants it to be felt in the inner being, to be stirring up within our hearts. Paul is concerned with the soul. So question, are we concerned with the soul? Are we concerned with our own souls? Are you concerned with the souls of the men and women around you? Are you thinking about their inner being, their spiritual? Do you ever pray in regards to soul care? Or do you only pray thinking about external, physical circumstances and situations that impact our physical, earthly, worldly reality? Now listen, don't mishear me once again. That is not a bad thing. 
all throughout the scripture, we see prayers for physical, earthly, worldly help and need. And that is a very, very good thing. But this is the second prayer in the book of Ephesians. And it's the second time that Paul has been focusing on the soul. In chapter one, he says that, I pray that the the eyes of your heart may be opened, right? The heart, the soul. And then here again, he's saying that your inner being will be filled with the power of God. And so we have to pray and we have to spend time on our soul for this is a primary importance if we are going to have spiritual vital lives, which Paul would say is our very life. It's the thing that we were made for. It's where we will feel most alive is when we are thriving in intimacy with the God of the universe. And one of the ways that we even take care of our soul is actually through prayer, which we see Paul doing here. Now, what does this strengthening with power in the inner man look like? right? Like why pray for power or why pray for strength? Why not the many other things Paul could have prayed of? Well, Paul says that this is necessary for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. You see that again there in verse 17. This word dwell there is actually a very, very significant word. In the Greek, which is what the Bible was originally written in, there were two words that you could have used to uh, uh, communicate the word dwell, okay? One of them is actually translated to inhabit, But the other one is the one that we have here, which is the word dwell, which kind of means to settle down, okay? And so it carries this idea of a permanent residence versus a a short-lived one. It's kind of like owning versus renting, right? The inhabiting is the the renting, the the temporary dwelling, but the the dwelling, right, is the the permanent, the the owning of the soul. And so we're, we're a younger church, right? So a lot of us probably rent. Okay, and so if you're a renter, say of something like an apartment, let's say, then you kind of know what this means, okay? Like when you own an apartment, you don't say, look at the wall that divides your kitchen and your living room and say, you know what, I don't really like that wall. I'm gonna call up Caleb Hastings or or Garrett Boone and I'm gonna have them tear this wall down, right? You don't do that because you do not own that joint, okay? (laughs) Some of y'all are like, we can't? No, you cannot, right? It's an apartment, you do not own it, okay? And so uh, we don't own Campbell, right? So we can't look at the the yellow over here and say, I don't really like that yellow. I'm going to paint it blue and we're going to put three water droplets that represent the well on it. We don't own this joint, right? Like we would not be being good stewards. We may even get kicked out there. And so uh, when you own the home though, you could do what you want with the home, right? You can treat it how you want. You can change it how you want. You can take care of it how you want, unless you're in Austin and then city code makes you wait like nine years to do anything. But besides that point, right? Like you can actually... Uh, begin to change it in the way that you want. And what happens is, is that over time, it begins to reflect the person who is living there or dwelling there, that when you go into the home, it literally begins to exhibit some of their character, right? Unless you're like Natalie and I, we've owned our home for five years, and you wouldn't know who was living in there when you walked in, right? We blame them on having three kids. They, they run our lives, all right? But in most homes, right, you walk in and you realize, hey, there's something happening here. Here's who lives here. Here's what's happening. Here's who dwells here, okay? And this is what is talking, uh, Paul's talking about here. He's praying that Christ would not just visit within our hearts, that he would not just make a temporary dwelling, that we wouldn't just feel his presence one Sunday morning but then not really know if he's with us or not throughout the rest of the week. Paul is saying that Christ wants to own our hearts, that he wants to dwell there permanently, forever, to take up his residence, to plant himself in the rootedness of our own heart. And this happens, verse 17, through faith. 
When we believe in Jesus, this is what begins to happen. See, when we place our faith in him, what we are doing is we're giving him the deed to our house or our hearts, right? We're saying, I no longer own this, you now own this. Not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus becomes the right owner of the throne of our hearts. And Christ walks in, and what happens is when he comes into our home, when he comes into our hearts, he really finds it a mess, right? Like when we first come to Jesus, that's, that's really what uh, God is walking into. He didn't buy a flipped house. There ain't no gentrification happening in our hearts, right? Like he walked into the hood, all right? And it was just messed up and it was dirty. And the previous owner, ourselves and even Satan in this world and the things in which we, we filled it, we really didn't take care of our hearts that much, right? And so we find the garbage hasn't been taken out, right? We find that there are rats and roaches hanging around all over the place, right? That's so gross, I know, right? We thought it would be really, really awesome to hang black and silver wallpaper all around our house. Like, we thought this would look awesome, right? We haven't uh, cut our lawn, right? It looks like my lawn, like Jumanji's about to hop up out of there, right? And we see all of these, like, leaky roofs and, and busted doors and chipped paint, and this is what God walks into in our house. But what happens is, is that when Christ dwells in our hearts, through faith, he takes ownership of the house and God starts doing a work so that it is a place fit for him, fit for a king. And all of a sudden your heart begins to change and the king sits on your heart and he begins to transform you in these beautiful ways. He plants flowers around the outside. He cuts the grass. He hangs pictures of himself and of you and of his family of the church. And when you walk in, you realize who dwells here. You're not like, oh, who's living here? You realize Christ dwells here, right? Immediately you see it through all of the character shaping and all of the forming. And so this is what happens. And friends, that takes power to change just like this, this is why Paul prays for power. It takes the power of God to change our hearts into a home that is worthy of his dwelling, but God wants to do it in all of us. And we see this promise over and over and over again. So Christ is changing our hearts into a home that is wildly marked with his character and that will one day be wildly marked with his glory when we finally look like him for all of eternity. But he's starting that work right now. And Paul says, I want power in your life that you may feel that, right? Christ isn't just visiting here. He owns here. And this is what Paul desires. We need power to be changed like this, friends. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to call us to live out the gospel. And this does not take moral effort. This takes gospel effort. This takes us realizing the power of God, surrendering our will to God, believing in him. And when we believe in him, when we give our hearts to him, then we begin to be transformed. And we're able to live out the calling of the gospel easily, not with our own moral uh, supremacy or our own striving or effort. But Christ is doing the work within us. He's fixing the house. We're just letting them do it, right? And so this is what it takes. The, 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 the saints here, remember, they're saints, right? Paul is writing to already believers, but he says, I don't just want a little bit to happen within you. I want more and more to happen within you. Not a little bit of power, more power. Not a little bit of change, more change. I want Christ to radically transform your lives. And this is what Paul is praying. Are you praying this over yourself, friends? Are you praying this over our church? Please pray this over our church, right? That the power of God would be radically shifting who we are. Pray this over yourself. This gives vibrancy, and that vibrancy then moves us to action. Paul goes on then, and he prays what is one of my favorite prayers in all of the scriptures. So I want to read this again as well. In verse 17, he says, So that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Firstly, note something crazy here, right? Paul actually prays for strength so that we may comprehend God's love. You see that there? Right? Like, like we literally need strength to be able to actually understand God's power for us and his love for us. This is kind of a crazy thought if you think about it. Right? Like, like you couldn't even physically handle God's love for you if it were not for him strengthening you because it is too overwhelming. It's too much. And so literally you need the strength of God to be able to build you up to even be able to receive the love of God because of how overwhelming that love is to you. Man, one amen, right? That's wild, y'all, right? This is a wild, a wild thought, okay? Like, like this is crazy. And so maybe, I don't know what would happen, right? Like without the strength of God, maybe God would be like, I love you. And then you'd like implode or something, right? But it literally takes the strength of God building you up. That word comprehend there would actually probably be better translated apprehend because it means to grasp, to grab onto. In order to grab onto, behold, to grasp the love of God, you need the strength of God building you up. And how do we do this? The text says we do it together with all the saints, right? And so it is collectively that we see the full picture of God. In fact, that's why we celebrate diversity. Why? Because it is collectively when the young and old, when the black, white, Hispanic, Asian, when the poor and rich, when the, the, the middle class to the upper class, when the blue collar and white collar is when we are all coming together that we get a full picture of who God is. And this is what God is praying for here, that together with all the saints. And so this is why discipleship is important or community groups are important or, hello, like being at church, right? Like it's not just that we're doing the right kind of Christian thing like, like, no, it is together with all the saints that we begin to comprehend the very love of God. And so this is the strength by which that we can see the love of God for us. And Paul is asking that we would know the height and the length and the width and the depth of the love of Christ. Listen to this, read that, that we can know what actually cannot even be known in the first place. That's literally what Paul is praying. Like, this is kind of an absurd prayer request, Right? Like, he's like, I want you to know what you literally cannot know. Like, who prays that way, right? Apparently, Paul does when he believes that God can actually move in that way, and we can too. He says, I want you to know that which literally surpasses knowledge. You are unable to actually grasp this. And so Paul is praying this kind of a, a bold prayer here, saying, I want you to see what literally can't even really be seen. I want that working within you. I want it more and more within you for you to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And so then he asked that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is also kind of an absurd prayer request because he's taken this house analogy once again and he's kind of expanding upon the idea of that. So in the Old Testament, what would happen is that God would inhabit, he would temporarily uh, live in what was called the temple. The temple was the place where the Jews went to go worship God. And what they believed was that there was a place called the Holy of Holies that uh, God's presence would descend down upon and he would dwell there temporarily. And the people would be able to behold the presence of God and he would cleanse them from their sins, et cetera, et cetera. And the temple was, let's just say, is a little bit smaller than this room, but about the size of this room about the height, about the length, about the, the depth. So I want you to look around this room for a second. Like, go ahead and turn your heads, right? And I want you to get a grasp of how big this room is. What they thought was that the fullness of God would dwell within this room. They thought that, hey, God would descend down, and you would get this full picture of God. 
But in Isaiah chapter 6, we see something totally different. Isaiah chapter 6, he actually has a vision of Christ. And what he sees is that Christ doesn't just dwell within the temple like this. It says that the train of his robe filled the temple with glory, okay? Not him, not his robe, like the tail end of his robe filled up a room that's about this big. God is massive is what that is saying. Isaiah Isaiah sees this picture that kind of blows it out the water. And now in the New Testament, it says that we are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And Paul says, I want the fullness of God, not his robe, not the tail end of his robe, all of him dwelling within your hearts. This is wild, y'all. This is why this is a, a, almost an absurd request, but Paul's saying, no, 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 if the power of God is in you, if he has strengthened you, then you are able to feel that fullness of God, and it is experienced by realizing the love of God for us. And this is together with all the saints that we see this. This is beautiful. This is crazy, right? Like Paul is praying these things that are, that are wild, honestly. And so point number two, how do we feel spiritual vibrancy? Well, it's by recognizing, realizing the love of God. We have to see the power of God and have that working in our life, and we have to realize the love of God working within us, right? Paul has spent three chapters telling us what we need, expounding on God's truth, and now he wants us to know it, to experience it. This uncontainable, this unknowable knowledge, he wants us to know it still. God's salvation, God's love, it's not an intellectual truth to assent to. It is a a thing to be experienced, to be felt. There's personal relationship here. Right? There's intimacy that is had. D.A. Carson, who's a professor and a biblical commentator, he says this. He says, Paul is not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He is asking, that, uh, asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Right? In other words, friends, this love isn't merely head knowledge. He doesn't want you just to know. He wants you to know in the biblical sense, to experience God, this, this, this knowledge that actually surpasses knowledge, it says, right? So like even if we were to be able to intellectually explain to perfection the love of Christ, it would not be enough for we need to experience it. This is what Paul is praying, that you would know the love of Christ, that you would taste it, that you would realize it, Right? Like, it would be like you hearing about food versus, like, experiencing food. You know what I mean? So we'll use brisket, for example, because that is Micaiah, my four-year-old daughter's favorite food right now. Like, if you ask her what her favorite food is, she'll say brisket. We're for real raising a Texan, y'all, right? Like, I didn't even know what brisket was in Michigan, but it's Micaiah's favorite, right? So if you've never had brisket before, which I didn't until I came to Texas, you would kind of start off simple, right? And you would say, like, well... It's from a cow, right? All you vegans, sorry, right? And uh, it's kind of juicy, right? And, and we don't like this word when we're describing food, but like it's kind of moist, right? Some people hate the word moist. I don't know why, but it's pink, right? It has a, a smoky kind of flavorful feeling, and it should kind of fall apart in your mouth when done right, right? So not like Pokey Joe's, but like Black's Barbecue, right? Tell him, if you're the owner of Pokey Joe's, please still tithe, okay? So, right? It's flavorful, right? Like, it makes you want to leave church right now and go eat some food, okay? Like, that's what it should be. But if you haven't eaten it before, I could describe it with the most perfect elegance and, and the most perfect excellencies, and you would not know it until you tasted it, right? Listen, y'all, I could sit here and describe the love of Christ all day, but until you know it, until you experience it, 
until you taste it, right? Then it, it can't be understood fully. And so Paul is saying, hey, I'm not trying to expound and, and have all this preaching, all this theological excellence about the love of Christ. I want you to experience the love of Christ. Whoa. <laughs> Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, right? All right. So the love of Christ, right? Paul wants you to know it, okay? And so let me ask this, friends. Are you fine with just mere head knowledge, okay? Or do you seek after intimacy? Are you fine with theological assents to God or do you want to know God? Paul is saying, I want you to know God. I want you to know him in the biblical sense, to be intimate with him, that you would be drawn, that you would be uh, experiencing God. This is where vitality lies. For if you have the strength to comprehend right, how much God loves you, if your brain doesn't melt by the fact that God loves you so much because he's strengthening you and you feel the power of God, this is when you begin to come alive. And what happens is, is that it explodes your life into action, which is why Paul is praying this before telling them how to live out the Christian faith because they need the power of God and the love of God working within them. And when those two things are working in unison, then you immediately move into making much of God for you realize how beautiful he is, and it compels your hearts to action. The love of Christ compels us, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says. And so this is what we desire, right? I also love this, just a total side note. Notice that Paul isn't praying that we would love God more, right? He's praying that you would realize how much God loves you. Like, it would be easy to pray that we would love God more. That's a sensical prayer, and that's also, once again, a prayer in the Scripture. But that's not what he's praying. He says, I want you to know how much God loves you, how much Christ loves you. Are we praying that? Are we letting our hearts realize how overwhelmingly affectionate God's love towards you is, friends? It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Finally, then, Paul concludes his prayer with a, with a doxology, which just means kind of a, a praise to God, okay? And I want to read this again, verse 20. It says, now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice what Paul does here, and I love this. In fact, go to the next slide, right? Paul says, now to him who is able, which would be an awesome sentence, but that's not it, right? The next one, to him who is able to do far more but that's not it. That would be awesome already, right? But he says, for him who was able to do far more abundantly than, but that's not it either. He goes on to the next part, more abundantly than all that we ask, but that's not it either, right? He goes on again, all that we ask or even think, right? God is far more able to do anything that not only you can physically ask, you couldn't even conjure it up in your mind, right? God is able to do that much more. I love what Tony Merida, he's a pastor and a commentator, he says this. He says, God can do more in response to one prayer than we can do in 100 years of planning and plotting. We need a vision of God that increases our faith in God's greatness. Amen. Right? And this is what Paul is doing here. He's making God out to be extremely powerful, extremely loving, extremely gracious. He is trying to uh, raise up Christ in our hearts so we would see the fullness of who he is. Right? In fact, I actually love that phrase, that phrase far more abundantly. That's such a repetitive sentence. Literally, in the Greek, which is what it was written in once again, it is literally the Greek word hyper, hyper. 
right? Like Paul uses the exact same word twice. So he's hyper, hyper able to do more is what he's saying, right? He's so much more, way far beyond, over the top able to do more than not only what we ask, but even think our God is massive. Our God is massive. That is who we are serving, right? Also for anyone who says I'd be exaggerating in my sentences, uh, uh, repetition is biblical, all right? So repetition, use it all day, right? He is hyper, hyper, able, able. God is so massive, And what Paul is praying for here, what gives our lives vitality is expectancy. That's the third thing that we see uh, creates spiritual vitality. Paul is praying with a sense of expectancy, trusting that God is actually able, right? Paul is praying, expecting God to move, not just in little ways, but in massive ways. He serves a huge God who can do huge things. And so he's praying that they would experience the impossible, that they would know what cannot be known, that they would have depth driven with God. And he knows that God is able to do it, for he says God is able. He knows it. There's expectancy here, right? And friends, here's the beautiful truth about all of this. Here's how we know this to be not just true because we're reading these words, but we see it true in the very Son of God himself. See, Paul is writing to a young Ephesian church, right, who was literally in the midst of religious pluralism at the time. There were all these different gods that they worshipped in Ephesus. And, and, and Paul was writing in the midst of all of this conflict they were experiencing. Ephesus was a lot like Austin, if you remember our introduction in this. There's all this uh, sp- spiritual plurality and this, all these different religious ideologies. And, and, and Paul is literally praying that, no, 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 our God is so far beyond all all of them, right? He's so much greater than all of them. In fact, what happens is, is no other local deity today or then or ever throughout all of human history has ever shown the sacrificial love to their inherits the way that our God has shown his sacrificial love to us. See, every other religion, every other way of thinking, it demands of you. It says, you need to give more love. You need to give more sacrifice. You need to do more right. You need to do all these things, but that's not what we see in our God. What we see in our God is the most powerful being that has ever existed. But it says that God took all that power and God became a man, born in a manger, right? See, the power of God was displayed most beautifully when he actually laid aside that power and became weak to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2 says. And we see the love of God in these beautiful ways. See, he's not saying, you need to love me more. He's not demanding his love. He's saying, let me show you how much I love you. For in the cross of Christ, John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the the love of God. Before you could do anything, before you could give anything back to God, he loved you where you were already immediately. He loves you. This is the love of God, not demanding, but rather giving. And our God did not stay dead when he died, but rather three days later, he showed us the power of God by resurrecting up out of the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God forevermore. And so if he will resurrect out the grave, can we not expect him to do more or or less, actually, I should say, right? Like this is the biggest thing, overcoming sin and death. And so what are our little prayer requests to God, right? What is a a sickness or a deadly disease? What is a a light bill, right, or a relationship restored? What is your father, who maybe you don't have the greatest relationship with, what is it to be reconciled with him? God has already reconciled us, us, us to himself. Can he not do more, 
right? See, we can pray with expectancy now. Why? Because in the gospel, we see the power of God, the love of God displayed as he lays it all down so that you who are weak may be strong in him, so that you who were despised may no longer be despised, but he wore that despising on the cross as we all mocked him as he died, and now he can give us the love of God. We see this role reversal, right? And this is why we can know that this prayer works, It's already been proven to us in the Son, and it's for the sake of his glory and the growth of his church, as it says there in verse 21. This is how God displays his glory. And so what do we do with this prayer? All right, what do we do? How do we respond to this prayer? Well, I think there are a couple of things, and it's really simple. One, if you do not know God, right, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if you do not know the love of God, or or maybe you're kind of wrestling in your relationship with Jesus, verse 17 makes it really simple. It says, through faith. We experience this love. Through faith, we experience this power. Through faith is the way in which we are able to comprehend and come alive, friends. Paul wants us to come alive here. And this is through faith. God's love is wild for you. So you can surrender your life over to him. You can say, come dwell in my heart. Right? Not my will, but your will. It is through faith. When you believe in Jesus, something so simple, he does this wild transfer. He takes your life and he gives you his. And the power begins to change you so that your room, your home, your heart, your house begins to be a dwelling place for him. And that will be true throughout all of eternity. That one day if you believe in Jesus, you will dwell with God forever and he with you forever. You will be his people. He will be your God and you will make your dwelling place with him and him with you. This is the beautiful truth that can begin even right now. And so if you don't know who Jesus is, man, the, the, the offer in the text is simple. You can place your faith in him. You can say, God, I surrender my life to you. Here's the deed to my house and let him come in. If you've done that, If you do believe in Jesus, if you do understand who he is and and what he's done, then, man, what what Paul begins to do then is he moves the church into action from this point on, right? Paul uh, says, I want you to get a glimpse of God's love, that your life would be radically changed by that love, the, the power of God, and that that would compel you to do all these beautiful things. See, what happens is, is from chapters four to six, he begins to lay out for the church what he wants to see in them. And he says, I want you to push back darkness in this world. I want you to, to, to love your families, your household well. I want you to, to literally share your faith and make disciples. I want you to kill sin in your life. Friends, sin is powerful, but God is more powerfuler, <laughs> right? He is stronger than sin. That's what we're just reading. And he says, you will have the power of God if God dwells in you. So he gives a, a vision for the church that he is able to do far more abundantly, right? And so do you pray this over yourself? This power, this love, this intimacy, this experience, do you pray it expectingly, knowing that God can answer it, that he wants to answer it? Do you continually give him the keys to your heart, right? You can't give him the, the, the deed and then take away the keys, right? You continually give him the keys over and over and over again. And sometimes you get mad because he tears on a wall you didn't want tore down, and then you, you change the locks on your door. You got to give him new keys again, right? Let him back in. Continue to do that work, and then as he does that, you will be changed, and the power of God will be displayed in your life and in verse 21 in the church for his glory. And so I pray that we will be a church that displays the power, the love, and the glory of God. That as Paul will give us how we are to act in the church, that we would begin to be a church that acts like that, that also pushes back darkness, that also kills sin, that also has intimacy and relationships, that we would trust that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think 
for this is the God that we serve. I love you guys a ton, but listen, Christ loves you so much more, right? Christ loves you so much. And so I pray along with Paul that we will be a church that realizes the overwhelming love of Christ for us. Amen. When we stand together, I want to do a little bit, something a little bit different as we pray to close us out. The band's going to come up, and we'll close out with, uh, with two songs here in a minute. But God is far more abundantly able, above and beyond, to do for and through his people. So let's press in together. And so here's what I want to do. There's going to be some words on the screen here. And I want to read these words out together. It is literally the prayer of Ephesians. All I did was I changed the pronouns a little bit from our to like we or us and things like that, okay? And so I want to read this prayer out loud. And man, as we are reading this prayer, would we make this the prayer over ourselves and over our church? So go ahead and put that next slide up. Ready? I'll start us and I'm going to fade out and let us pray this out loud together. For this reason, we bow our knees before the Father from whom every family To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory and the well, and in all the churches, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we sing together, friends, there are two different places for us to take communion. 